I think that that many of these things are actionable because when you know what the microbes are that are out of balance, you can read about exactly what what drives those. Oh, these two compete. Anything I can do to help this one, I can bring down that one. Um, oh, this one likes resistant starch and it's overgrown and it's kind of one of the problematic ones. Oh, less resistant starch in your diet would be helpful. Are you struggling with bloating, gas, constipation, and fatigue, but don't know what's causing these problems? The Gut Health Reset Podcast with Dr. Anne-Marie Barter dives deep into the root causes behind these issues that start in the gut. This podcast will give you the knowledge you need to heal your gut and reset your health. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the Gut Health Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Barter, and today we are talking about SIBO. And we're also talking about leaky gut and brush border enzymes and functional gut disorders and yeast overgrowth and the research. And in this episode, you're going to totally hear me geek out because I love talking about commensal bacteria, which is your good bacteria. And so this episode is not for the faint at heart, but it is an incredible episode if you really want to learn about the gut and what's going on and what's going on with those microbes so that you can figure out what's going on with your IBS and some of your functional gut disorders. We have a very special guest today here on the Gut Health Reset podcast, and he is a returning guest because his interview before was so incredible about histamine. And our returning guest is Dr. Norman Rubillard. He's a PhD, founder of the Digestive Health Institute, and is a gut expert, author, and a microbiologist. He's a creator of the Fast Track Diet, Fermentation Potential System, author of the Fast Track Digestion book series, and publisher of the Fast Track Diet mobile app. Dr. Norm received his PhD in microbiology from the University of Massachusetts, studying bacillus and other bacillus species. His postdoctoral training at Tufts University in Boston focused on antibiotic-resistant gene transfer, and he was the first to demonstrate the transfer of genes between anaerobic gut microbes. During his career in both pharma and biotech, Dr. Norm studied the mechanisms of antibiotic actions and the genetics of antibiotic resistance. His work contributed to the development and approval of a life-saving antibiotic, and he always recommended a cautious approach with antibiotics, balancing the benefits with the risks and the side effects. He also has worked with on a variety of other projects, including septic shock, viral illnesses, and other antibiotic, antiviral, and antibody-based therapies. Hey, Dr. Norm, I have been looking forward to having you back on the podcast. It was just such... <laughs> a fun time talking to you before you just brought so much wonderful information about histamine. And so today I, I really want to dig into SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth a little bit. And I know that you have so much to bring to the table on this topic. So let's just like first dig in and, and, and what is SIBO? Sure. Uh, Anne Marie, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, God, it's got a long history. It was first uh, reported, at least the first paper I ever read on it was uh, by a guy named Fraser 
who studied malabsorption. He wrote a book on malabsorption. Brilliant scientist in 1949 wrote this paper on uh, bacteria of a fecal origin coming, in other words, from the large bowel moving into the small intestine. And the thing that struck him was that these bacteria were getting up into a place where our final digestion of food occurs. And so he said, these bacteria are now competing with us, with the host for essential nutrients. And um, there was a new idea, a new concept. He received quite a bit of criticism for this, this idea. And of course, he fought back. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, he's a bright guy. But meanwhile, air, research on irritable bowel syndrome was uh, not even close to being connected with this type of bacterial overgrowth. Uh, there was a paper published in 1950 that suggested that people with IBS had a mental disorder. And, you know, there was really no idea that it could be related to SIBO, but that began to change in the 90s. Uh, there were uh, some descriptions of actually what some of these bacteria were. People, you know, used an endoscopy to recover the bacteria and type them in the laboratory. So, in the in several of those bacteria were types that were more associated with the large bowel. So, the bacteria started to come into a picture that there were bacteria here. Um, Hunter, researcher in the UK, was doing a lot of experiments and, and realized that people with IBS were producing a lot of gas gases and that a, a low fiber diet was very helpful, you know, in fibers of fermented, right, that will make the gases. And then, uh, you know, one of the powerhouse researchers, um, Dr. Mark Pemintel's group out at Cedar sinai in LA, uh, started doing some definitive studies on SIBO and, and were treating with antibiotics and showing that that would improve the symptoms of SIBO. Um, so by, I'd say, 2005, there was a pretty clear understanding that a lot of these IBS cases were actually SIBO. And, um, you know, the last time you and I talked, we may have talked about some of these other forms of dysbiosis. SIBO is kind of one of the big ones, but um, CIFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth, uh, Satish Rao's group is working on that. It's, uh, it's hard to test for compared to SIBO. You have to um, use an endo endo endoscope and get a sample and then see if these fungi grow. But he's a, he's saying that about 25% of people with these IBS type symptoms that are unexplained by other means um, have CIFO. Um, there's emo, what they now call emo intestinal methanogens um, overgrowing, these organisms that make methane. Um, very common in people that have um, constipation will have a lot of these organisms and a lot of methane. And then uh, loosely, I've been talking about uh, LIBO, large intestinal bacterial overgrowth, based on some smart pill technology that's showing in IBS patients that many of them have a significant uh, increase in, in acids in the early part of the large intestine. And that's indicative of bacteria because they make acids as end products. So, um, you know, there's a lot of research going on, but, uh, I, you know, things are becoming at least more clear than they had been in the past. So when we're talking about, say, IBS, um, are we talking about all different types of IBS? Or are we talking about, or is it more prone towards IBS with constipation, IBS with diarrhea, or IBS mixed? Uh, so what do you know? Hmm. Yeah, it, and you know, in a way, it reminds me of 
a lot of research on inflammatory bowel disease drives me nuts. A lot of these studies will include both ulcerative colitis and colitis patients. And even though they, they are both inflammatory bowel disorders, they're different. You know, mm -hmm. one's limited um, to the colon and the other one can impact any part of the uh, digestive tract. So I would prefer to see some of these things teased apart. The same with IBS. Um, I think you could uh, you know, uh, if in a perfect world, you would study IBSD, diarrhea, predominant I, IBS, um, IBS mixed, where there's some oscillation between loose stools and hard stools of constipation. And then you would study IBS-C separately. At the very least, I think you really should um, take IBS-C, constipation predominant, and, and take that out and look at that separately. Because um, there is a strong connection with a lot of methane being produced in the gut by these archaea organisms um, and, and constipation. Now, constipation can be caused by many other things, but I, I'd still say IBSC, maybe try to study that separately. I think we'd make more progress there. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Get at that question. Yeah. I mean, we definitely know that the methane groups, a lot of times, um, are, are definitely associated with more of the constipation, mm. I guess. Um, it, but I have seen some, some cross studies that have said, oh, no, the hydrogen groups are associated with the mix. Oh, no, the methane groups are associated with the mixed group. And so I'm just, I was just curious if there was a certain subset that you had seen in the literature that was, um, that was associated maybe with constipation, um, diarrhea or mixed? Um, yeah, there's been a huge number of, of studies looking at this. <clears throat> and they're, they're still somewhat observational studies. Uh, they're looking within these populations. And again, sometimes that's why it's clouded. They're trying to look at all these IBS subtypes, and then they'll tell you all the organisms they found. And so you can say, okay, well, here's the organisms that are popping up in terms of being out of spec or out of range compared to the consensus population for this for people with IBS versus healthy controls. There's a lot of those studies. Um, there are some studies that have focused on IBS-D or IBS-M, um, and then some that have looked at IBS-C. Um, still, it's, it's very kind of Wild West, open, observational studies. You know, what are we seeing? And, and there are some things that that come up in these studies. Um, I think one of the big things you see with IBS, um, and again, I can't always discriminate between each type of IBS because the studies are mixed. But one of the things, one of the observations that does come up time and time again, um, they see the same, something very similar in obesity studies, by the way. So people eating a lot of carbs, IBS people may be eating a lot of carbs too, but um, they do see um, an increase in these firmicutes type of bacteria over the bacteroidetes. And why are these important? Because the, these, are, these are phyla, the phylum level organizations of these microbes in our gut. Um, so that the highest level, but there's more beyond um, firmicutes and bacteroidetes. There's proteobacteria, there's the, the methanogens, archaea, um, there's fungi and there's uh, fusobacterium and there's actinobacteria like the bifidobacteria um, and several more. There's seven or eight of these things and more if you throw in, you know, 
uh, fungi and protozoans. So there's seven or eight groups, high-level groups of these organisms, but, but uh, Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes, the reason those are important is those are about 90% of the microbes in our gut. So they're mostly these two. There's the other five or six, yes, and, and, and I'm sure they're important in many ways, but these 90% of your bacteria, these two. And so when you see this ratio shift, you have to say, okay, what does that mean? And we see this Firmicutes over Bacteroidetes in IBS studies, we see it in um, obesity studies, and we also see it in um, studies on epilepsy. And what's, what I find interesting with that, with those two, is that that ratio shifts in the other direction because this is where it belongs. In, in IBS patients, obesity patients, epilepsy patients, it's like this, too many firmicutes over the Bacteroidetes. Put people on a ketogenic diet, very low carbohydrate diet, and it starts to shift back more in line with what the healthy control population looks like, which I think is, is some evidence that all of these diets, including my own fast track diet that limit or restrict carbohydrates in particular, um, including, um, you know, the specific carb diet, biphasic diet, a number of other ones, FODMAP diet, they all have that one thing in common, low carb diets, ketogenic diets they are reducing the fermentable material, the carbohydrates, that bacteria, it's kind of their, their preferred fuel source, especially in the early part of the digestive tract. So that ratio of those two, I think that's really important. I spoke at a lecture out in um, Seattle a couple of years on that. Um, but there are other observations. Um, you see oftentimes uh, an increase in proteobacteria. So those are like the Klebsiella, the E. coli, and then there's some pathogen serration and so forth. But I'm just talking about the commensals, more of these proteobacteria. Considered if you have too many of them could be inflammatory. A decrease in bifidobacteria, which I don't, I actually think that's a good thing for somebody with IBS not to have too many of those. Those can be um, inflammatory based on a, a recent study by Peter Turnbaugh at UCSF. Um, one of the things that I thought stood out in some of these studies, and I've, I've looked at a lot of these, is an increase in one particular type of from uh, firmicutes, right? Remember we said these high firmicutes. So what are those? Those are Clostridia, Bacillus, lactic acid bacteria, Ruminococcus. Well, there's certain types of these Ruminococcus bacteria that are increased and it shows up in several of these IBS studies. And what are Ruminococcus? Well, some of them are healthy and they break down these, you know, um, polysaccharides, and, 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 and we can use the fats, and they're in our gut, the part of the population, but we have too many. They specifically love resistant starch. And that's a type of starch that's a lot like fiber. We don't digest it, but the microbes do. But Ruminococcus torquez, um, bromei, or bromi, uh, I think it's bromei, not so bad, but torquez. And there's another one that I just won't come to mind at the moment, but I think that's an indication of, you know, a bit of dysbiosis there. So, um, and of course you do see, uh, you can look, you know, in a stool test, you're looking at all of these seven phyla and, and you're looking at all of these bacteria and, and genus and species and the, and the archibacteria, the bacteria in these stool tests. And so you want to look at methane brevibacter smithii. That's a methane producer. You want to look at the 
um, the bacteria that make hydrogen sulfide, the sulfate reducing bacteria. They're in the proteobacteria group, um, but they're important because hydrogen sulfide competes. Uh, the, hydro the sulfate reducing bacteria compete with the methanogens. So this hydrogen, it's a food chain. You consume carbs, bacteria make the hydrogen, and the hydrogen gets consumed either by the methanogens to make methane or the sulfate-reducing bacteria to make the hydrogen sulfide. So there's a, there's a competition for this hydrogen fuel. And which way that goes can have repercussions in terms of diarrhea or constipation. So I think, as you, <laughs> as you can tell by that overly long answer, it's complicated. There's, there's a lot going on. but um, it's it's a good thing to really try to follow and understand because I think that that many of these things are actionable because when you know what the microbes are that are out of balance, you can read about exactly what what drives those. Oh, these two compete. Anything I can do to help this one, I can bring down that one. Um, oh, this one likes resistant starch and it's overgrown and it's kind of one of the problematic ones. Oh, less resistant starch in your diet would be helpful. So it can be actionable if you look at this information carefully. Hey, this is Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Have you ever spent hours searching for the right supplements to heal your body? And when you finally found them, maybe you weren't sure it was a brand that you could trust or if the products were safe. After hearing about these issues time and time again, I decided to put together a complete store of supplements for healing and supporting your gut at dranmariebarter.com. There are supplements for constipation, thyroid health, gut health, energy, and so much more. There are bundles created for sleep support, pain support, histamine support, and the list just goes on and on. These supplements I use personally or I've handpicked because they've worked time and time again on countless cases in the office. And on the website, you can see what ingredients we use to put your mind at ease. If you visit DrAnnMarieBarter.com and use the promo code podcast to get 10% off your next order. So what are you waiting for? Go visit Dr. Anne Marie Barter and get 10% off your supplement bundle. Ciao. And now back to our episode. <laughs> yeah. I, and I like that you brought that up because I am getting um, a lot of folks coming in because re resistant starches are really on the rise. I think that there's been maybe a fair number of podcasts about them or something. And so I tend to start to see that coming into my office and, you know, a lot of IBS patients feel much worse because they've tried these resistant starches. They're, they're taking this advice and they feel much worse based on exactly what you said. What are resistant starches for folks that don't know. Yeah. And um, also if people want to learn more, I wrote two articles some years ago, precisely for the reason you're talking about is that people have been promoting. Wow. I started taking this raw unmodified potato starch. That's, that's a good source of it or green bananas. And I ate all this resistant starch. People take it in powder form. And I'm having vivid dreams and this. Well, other people read that and like, I want vivid dreams. So they take it. But then some people with autoimmune conditions, um, I read the, the stories of one person with ankylosing spondylitis. It's an autoimmune condition where your own immune system is attacking the cartilage in your lower back. It's, it's debilitating. Um, but they were having worse autoimmune system, autoimmune symptoms on 
adding this uh, resistant starch, but they wanted to push through it to enjoy the benefits, which to me just sounded, you know, no, no. But, um, and other people, you know, tr have had experienced tremendously bad reflux on resistant starch. Um, so there are these potential side effects if it's being over-fermented. Um, but there's a population of people, maybe they're more adapted to plant-based carbohydrates. Um, there is an adaptive ability of the body. And so some people can consume a lot of fermentable material, fibers, resistant starch. And I'll, I will talk about what those are in a minute, the resistant starches. I haven't forgot about that. Fructose, lactose, sugar alcohols. There are people that can consume quite a bit of those fermentable uh, type molecules and be okay or even thrive. But for this population of people with functional GI issues and these types of dysbiosis we talked about, myself included, I'm susceptible to acid reflux, which is what got me into this field 17 years ago. I know I can't have too much fermentable material. I need to be careful. So here's the first, here's the article on resistant starch, and, and then I'll tell you what it is. Um, I wrote two articles. One is called Resistant Starch Friend or Foe, okay? Kind of a generic name. It's on digestivehealthinstitute.org, the website. You can go read it. It's a long article, a bunch of comments at the bottom, generated quite a bit of, of discussion, um, especially Duck Dodge's comments, you know, tune people into that to check. He's interesting guy. I wrote another article, a follow-up article called Resistant Starch Friend, Foe, or Lover. So it kind of gets to some of the things you talked about in my own experience um, and what I know about it and why I include limitations on resistant starch along with fiber in the fast-tracked diet. Mobile app books, my consulting practice, all the same idea and strategy. Okay, what is resistant starch? Um, well, there are basically, there are classifications of starches based on, you know, whether it's just inaccessible in the seed or whether it's just the certain type of starch um, and so forth, or whether it's chemically modified. So there's these different physical classifications of starches and some are more resistant to the other. But two, one distinction that I find important is what there are two basic species of starch. One's called amylose and one's called amylopectin. And amylose is kind of a linear molecule takes time with that structure and the types of bonds it has for amylase, the enzyme that breaks down starches, to nip away at all these, because they're very long, thousands of units long, nip away at all these glucose units and break down that starch. Amylopectin, on the other hand, is very branched, huge molecules, tens of thousands of glucose units stuck together, but very branched. And so there's a lot of ends where amylase enzyme can start nibbling away at this. And so amylopectin is considered a very easy to digest starch. And so foods that have high amylopectin content, like jasmine rice and sushi rice, certain potatoes, they have a higher glycemic index because the amylase enzymes in your saliva and from your pancreas can break down the starch pretty quickly. And then it has to be broken down to glucose to get into your bloodstream. And by the way, if you remind me later, if you want to talk about brush border enzymes, that is really a fascinating topic. Because don't forget, to digest starches, no matter which type, you need these brush border enzymes because amylase enzymes only break them down to two and three sugar units. 
And they're still stuck in your intestines until the brush border enzymes, sucrase, sucrase isomaltase, finish breaking down these last three so they can be absorbed. Um, but anyway, the basic breakdown of amylo amylopectin is quite fast. Amylose, on the other hand, is foods that have high levels of amylose. So an Uncle Ben's rice, a basmati rice, a wild rice, uh, certain, again, certain types of potatoes, green bananas, um, have a lot of this amylose. It's harder to digest. It's harder to break down and digest and absorb. So it has a lower glycemic index. And that's why in my diet approach, I have this calculation called FP for fermentation potential. And it's a rearrangement of the glycemic index equation. So any, any foods with a high glycemic index have a low, a low FP, like the sushi rice, high glycemic index, low FP. In other words, this FP measures fermentable carbohydrates left over that bacteria can access. That's why they call it fermentation potential. So you would be better off with a small serving of a high GI food because it's easier to digest. It won't feed your bacteria as much as, say, the basmati rice with a, a low GI, but a high FP and more apt to overfeed these microbes. And, and it gets back to that resistant starch or less resistant starch uh, that you talked about. But they both do require the brush border enzymes. I just want to, because people don't talk about that much, but they're. I've been reading a lot of studies recently. There's a new one out of Russia on brush border enzyme deficiencies in people that have functional GI issues. They used to think that these brush border enzyme deficiencies were just uh, in, in certain children that had genetic deficiencies, and it's debilitating when they have it, and they have to take a sample of the of the brush border there, you know, with again. With the endoscopy, take a sample, send it to a highly specialized lab because it's tricky to assay these brush border enzymes, figure out if this kid is okay, which ones they have or don't have, or what, what are their levels. But now this, there are more than one study that show that people with these GI disorders are deficient in the brush border enzymes. So that's another, I think, really important area to not ignore when you see people that have these functional GI issues and they have intolerances to carbohydrates starches in particular, but also disaccharides because the brush border enzymes, that's what they are called, disaccharidases. So sucrose, maltose, so forth, but starches too, for the reason we mentioned. How are they measuring um, brush border issues? How, how is that being measured? Yeah, it's very um, tricky. Yeah. It, it goes back to Oh, I forget how you pronounce his name. You could Google a Dalquist or something. This guy in the 60s came up with this. I don't even know how I know this stuff, honestly, but it just pops into my head. In the 60s, developed this way to assay brush border enzymes. And it's tricky because you've got these disaccharidases, sucrase, isomaltase, maltase, trahalase, that measure that, that break down either oligomers with several glucose units long or, or these dimers of glucose or trimers of glucose. The, the, the breakdown products of starch um, and a few other things and, and, and sucrose itself and so forth. But these enzymes, you know how we have the villi, that's the rug, and, and the microvilli sticking off of the shag rug tips. So it's like a shag rug and a shag rug, all these little finger projections in our small intestine. 
to gives it tremendous surface area for digest, finishing off the digestion with these brush border enzymes and absorbing the products. And so these microvilli cells produce these brush border enzymes, and most of them remain attached to these finger-like microvilli projections. They're anchored in the membrane, but they kind of stick out, wave around inside the small intestine. And that catalytic end that does the job on these sugar units sticks out, and that's why it can break them down. Now, there's a lot of challenges when you're trying to measure that, because first of all, you go in and you take a biopsy, you're just getting a clump of these cells with the enzymes stuck on the tips of the microvilli. And then you maybe homogenize it, mix it up, and then you're subjecting it to, um, to, you're trying to assay it, and so you're adding buffers, and what's the pH, and how closely does that laboratory setup look like the small intestine? You want it to be close so you can get a read on it. And then also this competition, because right next to these brush border enzymes are transporter uh, molecules that once you nip off the glucose, it gets immediately taken into the cell. All right. But in the in vitro assay, that might not happen. So you've got that to worry about. You also have um, other enzymes that will compete with the products of the brush border. So if you're going along and, you know, you might want to inhibit sucrase while you're measuring another enzyme. And so there are certain inhibitors that they can use. But um, I, I think for your listeners <laughs> and maybe for us so we can move on, it, it's complicated. And thank God there are some really good uh, enzymologists and physiologists, uh, people that understand how do you determine a VMAX of an enzyme and all of that, that are kind of on it. There's uh, an excellent uh, pH, uh, another, I'm sorry, PhD student that just wrote a thesis on it a few mm -hmm. years back, just phenomenal stuff. <laughs> but you need to have some time if you're going to really dig into it. What are the symptoms overlapping? My assumption is the symptoms of overlapping with uh, leaky gut. It's almost what people are almost mm. putting into the leaky gut category. Is that true? Mm. Yeah. Well, the, the symptoms uh, of a lot of these conditions do overlap, right? Mm -hmm. um, histamine intolerance and IBS. There's a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. And so it does make it kind of hard to know immediately what somebody has, except for the fact that IBS is a lot more common perhaps than, than histamine sensitivity. Um, leaky gut is, um, you know, it's, it's a physical thing, right? Your, your, your gut lining, most, most typically in the small intestine, um, these uh, tight junctions between the cells, these proteins and things in there so that stuff doesn't creep through there and get into your circulation. You want those tight, but different things can insult that and they can loosen up leaky gut and become leaky to undigested molecules. So instead of those individual glucose units from starch breakdown, you'd now get those two and three starch um, size molecules. So um, you'd end up getting peptides instead of fully broken down proteins in the form of amino acids. Um, you might get larger fat molecules instead of just the, the free fatty acids. You might get portions, uh, surface proteins of bacteria. You might even get whole bacteria and viruses leaking out into your bloodstream, in which case you, you're going to have an immune response to it. Your body's saying, this, this isn't right. They attack it. 
Unfortunately, if some of the some of the things that leak out look like molecularly look like other things in your body, right? Molecular mimicry. Um, and a good example, we, we were talking about um, ankylosing spondylitis, right? What makes your own immune system attack your uh, the cartilage in your back? <clears throat> well, there is um, some molecular mimicry there. There's a a, um, a determinant or a protein on the surface of um, Klebsiella pneumonia bacteria that resembles the cartilage molecules in your back. And so, if you get leakiness of your gut and these um, bacteria get into your system, the attack against those could end up leading to an autoimmune reaction for your own cartilage. And so that's the way these the molecular mimicry and leaky gut works. So you don't want it, right? Because it, it is an autoimmune risk. And so why is it why is it leaking, right? That's the next question. And that can be from drugs, chemicals, um, perhaps from uh, extreme exercise, this called um, this uh, condition called um, exercise induced uh, gastropathy, I think it's called, it's just too much, you know, marathon runners, you know, you see them coming over the finish line, you know, they've got some issues going on, some of them. But um, also, yeah, I know, I've been to a few Boston marathons myself. Um, there's also um, a connection between, of course, anything that really damages the lining. So celiac disease, absolutely. You get these villi that are blunted and you're going to get some leaky leakiness of the gut. And it's an autoimmune condition itself, um, Crohn's. But also with SIBO and by association IBS, there is some indication that there's a bit more leakiness there too even, even though it's called a functional um, GI disorder. They may want to update that name because there are some physical things going on, these bacterial population shifts, overgrowths, and some some damage there as well. Well, I... I just love talking to you. I could keep going all day long here. Um, but where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, they can find me, um, us, on digestivehealthinstitute.org. Um, and there's uh, they can read that resistant starch article. They can read a four-part article on my theories of what really causes acid reflux. Uh, I put it all out on that one. Um, they can, uh, we have a shop tab for the fast track digestion books. There's one on IBS, there's one on heartburn. The IBS is kind of the, I guess you would consider more of the SIBO book. But since I say, I'm saying reflux <clears throat> is caused by the same type of phenomenon, either one would, would work. Uh, the fast track diet mobile app. <clears throat> so if you want to count these FP points, um, when you make your meals with that app and you just pull foods in, it's got 1,100 foods, you can choose them and you pick the serving size and it will calculate all these FP points. And then it will tell you if you're staying under your goal of 20 a day or whatever it is. So you can make your meals as a shopping list. Uh, there's all these food lists. You can look either on tables or search or voice, voice recognition. And then you can also um, stand back and look at a plot for a week or a month of your symptoms, because you can enter all your symptoms into it too, and are they two or a 10? And it would track your symptoms versus these FP points. And you can just see if you're making progress, if they're trending in the right direction. So um, yeah, all that's on the website. And then the consultation tab is a way to just give us a call. And um, I, I typically will do uh, spend 20 minutes with somebody um, on the phone just to see what's up with them. And that's all free and just make a decision if there's something 
um, I feel I can help them with, I'll, I'll suggest that. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here and just really appreciate your knowledge. And it's just been fun to, to kind of wrap about the new studies. I love hearing about the new studies. I geek out on that or any of the studies that you've read that I haven't. I love it. So fun for me. (laughs) Awesome. Well, and thank you everybody out there for listening. Um, Say hi, uh, let us know what you want to know, hear more of, and so that we can get that for you. And um, we'll take care until the next time. Thank you for listening to the Gut Health Reset Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, leave a rating and a review so more people can hear about the podcast. And hey, take a screenshot of this episode and tag Dr. Anne Marie on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Anne Marie Barter. And for more resources, just visit DrAnneMarieBarter.com.